So Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 14, 15, 16. We left off last week at verse 13. Um, Paul talking about a little bit his suffering for God's glory. And then he transitions into the conclusion of this chapter. And he says there in verse uh, 14, He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So Paul had just written in verse 13 about his suffering for for glory, being an offering of praise. And he seems to be concerned for the well-being of the Ephesians there in that section, the earlier section of Ephesians chapter 3. Um, because he was afraid, if you remember, uh, they're thinking about Paul being in prison because he shared the gospel with them because some of them were Gentiles. And so he, he writes here in verse 14, that very thing drove him to his knees in prayer. Uh, nothing and no one are out of the purview of Almighty God. So it is to him that Paul goes in prayer. Now, it's also a unique thing that Paul phrases this, I bow my knees before the Father, because it's a very rare occurrence that Paul mentions his posture in prayer. Um, We associate kneeling in prayer often today. Um, But you can search the words of Paul in Acts and all of his letters, and you will almost never find him phrasing this this way Um, but he wants the emphasis there he says I bow my knees before the father I go before the father in prayer in this way in submission Uh, and it's from the father that every family in heaven and on earth is named God is the great patriarch from whom everyone comes and accordingly he is the one to whom everyone can go in prayer Um, And God, uh, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, knows how to give good gifts. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? The Father can be approached with all of our prayers without reservation. And that's what Paul does there. He falls to his knees and he approaches the Father with his prayers. He knows and anticipates the thoughts and struggles of the Ephesians, particularly in relation to his imprisonment. And so he preemptively prays that God, in his great abundance, would extend his grace and the benefits of his grace to cover all the needs of the Ephesian Christians. So he prays there for spirit, uh, for a spirit power enabled strengthening to occur within each of the individual church members. See, that's what he says in verse 16. According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He continues on with that thought of his prayer there in verses 17 and 18. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. So Paul prayed for the people to have the strength of the Spirit's power and the love from faith in Jesus rooted and grounded in love. He prayed for the people to be so focused on Jesus throughout their daily tasks that it were as though he, were, he had set up residence within their very hearts. 
the heart being the center and motive of motivations and decision-making uh, that he may dwell in your hearts. Now that concept, we, we say it a lot in today's modern Baptist church, Jesus living in you, Jesus living in your heart, Jesus coming into your heart. Um, it's this concept Paul writes of, he may dwell in your hearts through faith uh, so that you will be rooted and grounded in love. The roots uh, were, so, were, were to go so deep and wide into love that they would find strength, security, and life just as a tree's root finds, goods, uh, finds health and life and strength in good soil. But also to be grounded in love, the foundation for the lives of the people was to be love. Love was to be on what everything they did was built. And so Paul's using to be rooted in love like a tree, to be grounded in love, like built on a foundation, using two different but very similar images to illustrate his point of the centrality of love to the life of anyone who has Christ as his center. And so Jesus' presence in our life brings love into our lives. So the more Jesus we have, the more love we have, and the deeper our roots go into love. And there in verse 18, Paul prayed for the people to have the strength to understand the vastness seemingly of that love that the people may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth that's an interesting concept there the strength to comprehend the, the ability to understand the strength to understand the the inverse of that is also true that if we do not act as though we understand christ's love then we are weak have the strength to understand Christ's love, uh, but not understanding Christ's love and how we act, it proves us to be weak. And so may we have the strength to understand God's love. Now, when you think about that concept, the, the strength to understand, uh, being rooted and grounded in love, does anyone come to mind who seems to really understand the length, height, and depth of God's love? When, when, when you think of what that means, does anyone come to mind who kind of illustrates that in their lives? Yeah? Know anybody who loves like that? At least demonstrates that in a powerful way? No matter who or what? What do y'all think that phrase means, the strength to understand God's love? To know the unknowable. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. <laughs> oh. You, you ever think it's easier not to think about some things? Because when you think about it, it's really difficult or hard or it requires too much brain power. <laughs> Or you're too tired, or you're just not in the mood, because then it would mean you'd have to love somebody you don't really want to love. <laughs> what it says is love that passes, surpasses right. knowledge. Yeah. We have no idea. Right. How much love that is. We can't catch that though. So then, how do we how do we demonstrate that love if we can't know it? Well, by faith we follow. We do what Jesus yeah. did. Right. Right. Like asking God to forgive the very ones who were nailing him to the cross. 
How many of us would do that? <laughs> I said verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So he, he says again, you know, to know the unknowable. So Paul's praying that the people would know the love of Christ that is unknowable, that they would know the unknowable. And so that they then would be filled with the fullness of God. Filled with the fullness of God. I would think my capacity would severely limit the fullness of God. <laughs> but that we may be filled with the fullness of God in knowing the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And if love is an action, then this, what he's saying here, to know the love of God love being an action, then knowing it is not merely receiving information. Love is experienced, and love is demonstrated. So believers are to experience the love of God that cannot be fully reasoned by the human brain. We try to understand it, we try to wrap our heads around it, but we won't ever do it, is what he's saying. But we can experience the love of God. And experiencing the love of God, we can also demonstrate the love of God to those around us. And so believers uh, are to experience God's love so that they can be filled with all of God, which seems impossible, and even just as impossible as the description Paul just gave of God's love. It's unknowable. But Paul is writing the, the be filled with the fullness of God. This is, you know, the Godhead is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Scripture does speak in other passages, even in Paul, of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so it would seem as though in this language, Paul is doing two things, calling God the Holy Spirit, or calling the Holy Spirit God, but also speaking of that filling of the Holy Spirit and all that he wants to bring into the life of every one of his readers. And so as he wrote there in verse 17, if Christ is dwelling in our hearts from our focus on him, then the Spirit can fill us uncontested. And a filling of the Spirit allows us to be guided in God's love through all of our actions. And so these verses, uh, what Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers, uh, they help us to know how to pray for other believers, but also how to pray for ourselves, and really what to strive after, being rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, digging deeper into the love of Christ. And now that love of Christ, that concept, is what, he is going to build this entire next section of Ephesians on. And so he writes in verse 20 and 21, oft, often quoted, out of context, but often quoted. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the, work at, or the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Forever and ever, amen. You ever heard that verse? <laughs> now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. Uh, he's writing of the greatness of God's love, or he has been writing of the greatness of God's love that extends beyond our ability to understand. And through that love, so God's love surpasses us. It, it, God's love itself is more abundant. And then he writes here, to him who is able to do far more abundantly uh, in the greatness of his love. Through that love, 
God is able to bless far beyond any, anything which our minds can conceive. And so his power at work within us is available to us because of his love. Without love, there would be no power at work. It all goes back to God's love. It all centers in God's love. That It comes out of God's love. It pours through God's love into us. And it's because of his love and because of his power, we praise him through our action in the church and in the action of Jesus. And so we're praising God because of his love. We're praising God because of his action. We're praising God because of Jesus' obedience from God's love. It all comes from love. And so may God be praised by all the generations to come on into eternity, as Paul writes there. Um, and we pointed out before what Paul's doing here in this verse, these two verses. This is one of Paul's praise breaks. He's in the middle of a teaching thought, and he almost can't control himself, and he just begins to praise. Um, some of your headings there may call it doxology, which he does in Romans, he does in Corinthians. He just has little moments where he just gets caught up with the greatness of God, and he praises him for a minute. And whoever's taking notes and, you know, um, taking the dictation of Paul includes it in the letter there. And so he's praising God in those two verses. And he praises God, and then it breaks from one, it seems to break from one form of teaching into another, but really what Paul's doing is it's transitioning from his teaching on love throughout that chapter 3 into what love springs, uh, how it springs out in our lives. Uh, look at chapter 4, verse 1. I guess 1, 2, and 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now look at that. So he says there, verse 1, <clears throat> he's a prisoner for the Lord. He urges his readers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So to live a life worthy of the sacrifice of Jesus. And then he defines what that means in those next two verses. So Paul's just written about the greatness of God's love and the fact that his love should fill us, uh, all of us who call ourselves believers. And so he begins to write about one of the ways in which the filling of God's love should come out in our actions. Through unity is where he's going to go with this. He first defines what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, and he lists out these things. Humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another in love, and eager to maintain the Spirit's unity. So he kicks it off there with humility. Uh, now, humility in the first century Roman culture was not a particularly aspirational characteristic. Um, it was actually considered a trait that only slaves were to demonstrate. And so for anybody who's not a slave to demonstrate humility was looked down upon, uh, was mocked. But Paul kicks off his list talking about Humility. He places humility at the top of the list of these Christian qualities he's defining. Uh, so true humility, it acknowledges God's sovereignty and our role in his plan, and it places other people before ourselves. Humility is selflessness in every circumstance and opportunity for the glory of God and the betterment of each other. Humility. How many truly humble people do you know? 
Or how many people do you know that display humility from time to time? Or how many people do you know don't have any humility within them at all? (laughs) Or do you know people like Moses who wrote Deuteronomy and called himself the humblest man who'd ever lived? (laughs) Maybe he was so humble that he was able to write that without a sense of pride in it. Maybe. I couldn't have, but maybe he could. Can we be completely humble? I don't know. I think maybe we can have periods of humility. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the hearts and minds of some people, but there's when I think of humility, there are people who come to mind who I've only ever seen display humility and give of themselves. And but that may have come from Yeah. It may come from and, and past experience that led them to that moment. And it is amazing to watch. <laughs> but Paul puts it at the top of his list. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Starts off with, and he has to put the word all. All humility. All. I mean, that's every single moment, every single thought, every single action, every single word. That's every single moment you are alive. All of the humility. And then he backs it up with that next word, gentleness. And that word means meekness, which is restrained strength. Restrained strength. So gentleness, meekness, restrained strength. I picture... Uh, when I think of meekness, um, like a giant hulk of a man, uh, I think of The Rock, Dwayne Johnson on Instagram. He is a huge guy. But then on Saturday mornings, he sits with his daughters and watches cartoons and let them, let them paint his fingernails. To me, I mean, that obviously that's a silly illustration, but that's meekness. Massive strength restrained in the moment. And that's what meekness is, restrained strength. That's what gentleness is, restrained strength. That, I mean, that word that Paul uses here is the same word for meekness. So gentleness is restraining oneself in action and speech as enabled by a surrender to the Spirit and God's love. And so if we're surrendering to, the, to God's love, then we're able to be gentle and meek and not bow up and not be offended. We're able to be gentle in that moment. See, because uh, the, the opposite, the inverse, a lack of gentleness is restraining the spirit and surrendering to the enemy. Think about that. And just like I ask about humility, how many truly gentle people do you know? How many people do you know that display gentleness from time to time? And how many people do you know that have zero gentleness within them? And everything is a level 10 <laughs> in how they respond and how they speak and how they confront. If gentleness, I mean, it goes hand in hand with humility there in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness. That's walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Gentleness. Displaying that in how you respond and how you speak and how you act. In gentleness. (laughs) And then he escalates it again with the next word. Patience which is not something many of us are 
not, it's something that we don't readily practice. <laughs> they say don't pray for patience because God will give you an opportunity to use it. <laughs> you know, we tend to want the microwave of life instead of the crock pot. We want it now. We want it quick. But keeping with humility there and keeping with gentleness there, patience is in harmony with both of those. If a person is humble and a person is gentle, then they're demonstrating selflessness. And out of selflessness comes patience. Patient in how we act. Patient in how we interact. Patient in waiting on God. Patient when we are waiting in the doctor's office. When we're waiting on the phone. Waiting in traffic. Not getting irritated when our patience is tried. This kind of patience does not wear thin. It is baked in to who you are, which is difficult. How many patient people do you know? Do you ever display patience from time to time and then have something pop up that really sucks it right out of you? It's like, Yes. Exactly right. It's just the last 5%. I just, I mean, uh, right there at the end. I almost had it. It is. And uh, I mean, I always, I always go back to Abraham, right? God promised him you're going to have a son. And uh, Abraham's patience, even when he failed, he didn't fail until 11 years had passed. I mean, he waited 11 years for an answer, for action, and nothing had happened. And that's when he went to Hagar at his wife's suggestion. And then he had to wait another 14 years on top of that one. But how many of us would even wait 11 years? (laughs) I mean, I think we would have had the Hagar idea on week three. (laughs) We don't want to wait that long. But here he is, not just Abraham, but Paul writing about humility, writing about gentleness. Paul being in prison, writing about patience, patience with uh, his situation, walking in a manner worthy of the calling, walking in a manner worthy of Christ's sacrifice, of, of our salvation. And patience is right there. And then he drops the next one. This one's all kinds of fun. Uh, This may be one of the most difficult (laughs) and often ignored characteristics on Paul's list. Bearing with one another in love. This this is enduring and and persevering tolerance of one another in the name of the love of Christ. It means not writing somebody off because they're irritating or frustrating or ignorant or difficult. It means not writing somebody off because of their perceived weaknesses or faults or shortcomings. Or, or, you know, what we think are shortcomings or what we think are, are faults. Because the love that Paul wrote of, because of that love, we are supposed to bear one another up rather than tear one another down or simply ignore one another. We're supposed to bear one another in love, in the name of the love of Christ. How well do we do that? So we're supposed to bear one another up. 
But then that last one. A saved person should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now that word bond, the idea is like Paul being in prison, having chains that bind him to prison. Uh, The bond of peace, peace is supposed to bind believers to the unity of the Spirit. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We're supposed to be eager, zealous, passionate to maintain unity. But notice there, Paul doesn't say we're supposed to work to become unified. He says maintain it. So the love of Christ that he already prayed in the previous chapter for is supposed to be filling us so much that we're already unified in our praise of the Lord and our purpose of spreading the gospel. And so here Paul's stating we need to maintain the unity. And that word he uses there, maintain, it means to keep or protect. We're supposed to protect the unity. We're expected to protect the peaceful unity that the loving sacrifice of Jesus bought. You know, how well we love is shown in how well we protect the Spirit's unity. But notice also there in that passage, the unity is not ours. It's the Spirit's. It belongs to the Spirit. So we are caretakers of the Spirit's unity. When we say or do things that begin to stir up disunity, we're damaging the work of the Spirit. Even if we feel justified, even if we feel like we are right, it can. Well, when it, the grieving of the Holy Spirit in that particular passage I think you're referring to in Scripture when it says that, it's talking about uh, people who refuse to believe in Jesus. Because um, I mean, that's the ultimate grief. People won't believe. Uh, you know, it's uh, sinning against the Holy Spirit. Every sin can be forgiven except, except the sin against the Holy Spirit. And that's rejecting Jesus all through life to the moment of death. Um, and it's not till that point that that's the sin that can't be forgiven because you're refusing to believe. Uh, up until death, anybody can believe and have all of their sins forgiven. Um, and so here, uh, protecting the unity, stirring up disunity does damage to the work of the Spirit. Often, some of the greatest damage that we do is in the name of justifying ourselves or proving ourselves right. And so we are to, in selfless love, protect the unity of the Spirit at all costs for the sake of the gospel. For this reason, verses 4, 5, and 6, there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Now Paul says one seven times in those three small verses. He's really trying to drive home the point that we're supposed to be one in unity. Because there's only one body, one body of believers, one church. There's only one uh, a church, not a bunch of individual churches. It's one church empowered by one spirit. The spirit is not divided into little subsections sparking vastly different ideas. The spirit has one goal and an interweaving strategy to accomplish that goal. And so we have one hope of salvation, for there's only one way to eternal life, which is our call. And there's only one Lord, and that Lord is Jesus. Acts 4, 12. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one name, only one Lord, only one Jesus. There's also only one faith that opens the door to salvation. Paul actually wrote earlier in this letter that salvation is by grace through faith. One faith, only through faith. And then he says there's only one baptism. 
And that word baptism, I looked up every instance it's used in Scripture. Uh, it's used of water, water baptism displaying our salvation to the world, being immersed in water, displaying our salvation to the world. And there's not a, one baptism for one group and one baptism for another group and one baptism for a third group, only one kind of baptism. The baptism Jesus spoke about in the Great Commission that Paul speaks about here. There's also only one God. There's not a whole pantheon of gods. There's one God. There's not a God for you and a different one for me. There's only one God. And so we should all be completely unified because of our common belief and the one in whom we believe. Uh, how often do you think we lose sight of that? Those two verses. That we get folk, take our eyes off of Jesus and focus on things that are not of eternal value. How, how then can we recalibrate ourselves and come back to these two verses, come back to being one? How do you recalibrate? Praying. Pray. Yes. Heartfelt prayer. Yes. Uh -huh. Not just some, not just a rote prayer like we do sometimes. Yeah. Throw out our list and don't really think about it, or mean it. In your, in your prayer closet. I think of uh, Jelsey War Room when they're selling Miss Clara's house at the end, and that preacher walks in that her prayer closet. He said it's like baked in to the walls. I love that idea. Uh, stay in the Word. Yes. Um, when my mind runs away with me, that's what I do. I pull up my uh, Bible reading plan, read the Bible in a year plan, and I just do another day I've, on audio. My mind's running away in, in things I don't need to be thinking about or conversations that will never happen uh, and what I'll say in those moments um, and just listen to another day, you know, and uh, helps recalibrate and brings you back. I mean, I mentioned it a thousand times of, you know, George Mueller having over 20,000 prayers answered. Remarkable prayers. Prayers like uh, he was on a ship one time going to speak at this place and he needed to get there. But fog had settled in and he was going to be late and was going to miss the thing he was going to speak at and telling these people about Jesus. And he told the unbelieving captain, come with me, we're going to pray the fog lifts so we, I can get there on time. And the captain said, that's stupid, we're not going to do that. And they went down there and they prayed, and, or he prayed, George prayed, God, lift the fog. Amen. And the captain acted like he was going to pray. And George said, no, stop. I've got enough faith for both of us. And they walked out the door and the fog was gone. Uh, and I think what fueled his prayers was the, I mean, he didn't get saved until he was like 20. What I think fueled his prayers was the fact that he read Scripture through uh, over 300 times. And it was Scripture that fueled his prayers. And he was a busy man. He didn't have time to sit down and read a whole bunch. I mean, he... He, he, I can't remember how many orphans were under his care. I mean, it was thousands and thousands. He, he ran this massive orphanage uh, and, uh, in England. And, uh, but he still somehow was able to read Scripture through 300 times in his lifetime and had over 20,000 prayers. He kept prayer journals, kept prayer journals. He, he would write down what he was praying for, write down the day he started praying, and then write down what the answer was and when he got the answer. And he had over 20,000 prayers answered by God 
in the affirmative. That's not even no's. That's just yes prayers. Uh, and going, I think it was fueled, Sharon, by his investment in Scripture, praying Scripture. So calibrating ourselves with bringing our eyes back to Jesus. And so we see Paul talking about love fueling unity, and he's going to go on and continue to talk about this in the next section of Scripture that we'll look at next week. Uh, he talks about unity and the purpose of the organized church. Yes, Powerful passage of Scripture and extremely convicting. So we're going to look at that next week. Y'all pray with me. God, I thank you for your strength. I thank you for your love. I pray that as distractions come and the enemy tries to pull us away from the direction you would have us go, that you walking alongside us would constantly remind us of where our attention needs to be. And that we would demonstrate your love in the easy moments, in the hard moments, with the difficult people. We would demonstrate your love for the sake of your gospel and follow after you at every juncture. Give us the strength to do, to do that, to stand firm in the path you would have us stand. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to get to. God, I thank you for your grace and your power. And God, especially during this season, we thank you for Christmas and everything that we celebrate. In your name I pray, amen.